2: It was a tumultuous period, a time when people experienced major social and economic problems which intertwined with religious disagreements and political debates. Of course, I could be talking about any century in British history with such a description, but only in the 17th century did these difficulties lead to civil war, the execution of a king and a failed experiment with republicanism. What led Britain into this world turned upside down? What role did ministers and monarchs, James I and his son Charles I, play in its descent into chaos? Beyond Whitehall and Parliament, what can we learn from the lives of ordinary people about the fears and worries that drove people to action? And was the world that was delivered following these tumults a better one than the one which had preceded it? To answer these questions and more, I'm delighted to welcome Dr Jonathan Healy, Fellow of Kellogg College, Oxford, and Associate Professor in English Local and Social History in Oxford's Department of Continuing Education. Dr. Healy specialises in early modern British social and economic history, including poverty, economic development, popular political history, and rural history. His first book, The First Century of Welfare, was published in 2014, and it's now followed by The Blazing World, a new history of revolutionary England, published last month by Bloomsbury, and which he joins me today to discuss. Dr. Healy, I am delighted to welcome you to Not Just the Tudors. I have long been a fan of yours from afar. And so it's wonderful to have a chance to talk to you about your exciting new book. Thank you for coming on.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's fantastic to be on such a fantastic podcast.
2: Well, I like you already. (laughs) Can we start with doing something completely impossible? (laughs) Because this is a book that's thinking about revolutionary England, England in the 17th century. For anyone who does not know this period of British history, can you give us a kind of nutshell, broad outline
1: in, you know, a couple of minutes? (laughs) That's a terrifically mean question, but it's an incredibly turbulent period of English history, British history as well. The book focuses on England, but obviously you can't think of England on its own. It's an incredibly turbulent period. There are a series of monarchs, the Stuarts, who are of Scottish descent, and they basically have a terrible time of it. In the middle of the century, the whole thing collapses, and there's a civil war, basically between, Charles the First and Parliament or supporters of Parliament, which is a representative institution which is becoming stronger and becoming more forceful in its defense of its own position in the constitution in this period. That ends in defeat for the crown for the monarchy and eventually after several years of very complicated and what must have been incredibly frustrating negotiations for people at the centre the parliamentarians end up putting the king on trial and cutting off his head which is obviously a bit of a blow for the crown they then try having a republic which lasts for 11 years give or take initially that's a sort of parliamentary republic but then this one guy oliver cromwell who i'm sure most of your listeners will have heard of becomes head of state not a king but a lord protector. Then that falls apart again and the monarchy comes back under Charles II, the famous king who brought back partying, who is also tasked essentially with kind of holding the whole thing together again after this really kind of turbulent period. He does a reasonably good job but by the end of his reign things are starting to kind of fall apart again partly because his brother James II is a Catholic. Not only that, the country is now pretty solidly Protestant. Not only that, he's fairly authoritarian. And so within four years, he basically messes it all up again. And there is another revolution in which the British political class, if you like, gather together and invite a Dutchman, William of Orange, who is also the grandson of Charles I, the executed king, to come over. He invades England and then later kind of consolidates his power in Scotland and Ireland. And that final sort of revolution of the period, known to posterity, or known to some people to posterity, is the Glorious Revolution essentially kind of establishes that the monarchy is fundamentally subservient to Parliament.
2: Let's talk a bit about your approach and let's maybe start with where you start. So The Blazing World begins with James I of England, who's also James VI of Scotland. At least it begins in his reign, but you actually start with the story interweaving a pretend wedding in Cartmel in Cumbria and the gunpowder plot. What's happening there and why did you choose to make that the departure point for your book?
1: I wanted something striking and something which would grab the attention of the readers, but aside from that, briefly what happens is in 1604, there's the sort of the great and the good of Carmel, which of course now famous for sticky toffee pudding and a Michelin style restaurant indeed, but then was a sort of backward, very, very poor place. It's really been dealt quite a rough hand by the reformation. It had a priory, which had been dissolved by Henry the and never really recovered from that. And in 1604, so a year after James had taken the throne, the sort of the great and the good decided to. Have a celebratory sermon, but they did it on Saint James's Day, which is the day that James was crowned, which was also happened to be a day for one of the local festivities called a rush bearing, where people would go into the church. It's sort of summer festival, basically, kind of throw rushes on the ground, and then they'd often go outside and play football and play sports, and it would all be quite raucous. And I imagine drink was taken, etc., etc. And the leading parishioners of cartmel basically took over this day to have this sermon and got this Puritan in, and that's another big theme of the early parts of the book. The rhyme of this religious movement, which we call Puritanism. And this Puritan guy goes into the pulpit. He stands up. He starts doing the sermon. And then there's this procession barges in with all these kind of local youngsters, all wearing masks and all in their green rushes and stuff. And they're all carrying rushes and they've got guns. And this described as carrying diverse weapons of war, like guns and bagpipes. (laughs) So they're all playing the bagpipes. And they come in. And then they have this mock wedding between two young male servants. One's dressed in men's clothing. One's dressed in women's clothing. And they use the Book of Common Prayer, the Protestant prayer book. And they sort of do it as a way of mocking Protestantism. And it's all organised by this fantastic local Catholic gentlewoman called Jane Thornborough, who's about 24 years old, and she is just one of these kind of great characters from the period. And she obviously has no truck with these newfangled Protestant ideas. They're mocking them. And the sort of sad thing is that then a kind of year later, the gunpowder plot happens, and obviously then there's this massive clampdown on Catholics, and Jane's family end up losing two-thirds of their land because they don't conform to Protestantism. But the reason I sort of picked that is that it really kind of shows two things, really. One is the complexity of religion in this period. It's not just Catholics versus Protestants. It's more nuanced than that. There's also Puritanism, which is a sort of newish thing based around the vigorous reform of the Protestant church and also a kind of social reform agenda, so giving lots of money to the poor, but also making sure people behave themselves on a Sunday, which itself can be quite divisive. So it's partly that, it's partly to show the nuance of religion, the complexity of religion in this period, but also it was a really nice example of how what we would think of as high politics has real kind of cut through to local communities. I mean, Cartmel is about as far away from Westminster as you could possibly imagine. And these are ordinary peasants. I mean, Jane Thornborough is a gentlewoman, but she's a relatively minor gentlewoman. And yet these people are dealing with these big issues with humour, with mockery, and with some sophistication. One of the things that they do in this procession is they have a mock proclamation, the proclamation being the way that the Crown gets out political agendas. And they say that 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 Momus can live here no more, can tarry here no more. Momus is the Greek god of satire. So it's quite an erudite reference for a bunch of peasants. And that's really one of the kind of defining themes of the book, which is that the ordinary people basically have a really powerful role in this period. They're not just people who are being dragged along by the politics. The politics is taking place with their involvement. And that involvement builds to a crescendo in the middle of the period with civil war.
2: In other words, you're arguing through your work that this division between high politics and social history is a false one, and that we need to involve ordinary people in the telling even of political stories. And you use micro histories throughout the book to illustrate religious issues, economic issues, philosophical issues. You've given me a bit of an answer as to why you use them, but I also wonder how you found these stories. I mean, is this sort of a needle in a haystack, or did you have a strategy when you were recovering these individual stories?
1: I mean, there's some wonderful work by social historians already that one can draw upon. People like David Cressy, who's done fabulous work just going through all these archives looking for sedition and things like that. That's wonderful. The Carmel wedding is something that I discovered just almost at random. I was toying with the idea of writing a terribly serious local history of the first area of North Lancashire which is where Carmel is and so I was looking through all the Star Chamber records there. Star Chamber is a feared court of the crown at this point and I just stumbled across it and I just remember kind of pulling through these massive papers in the National Archives going oh my word this is brilliant that's fantastic and this was about 10 years ago but also I mean there are these wonderful archives out there and you know a book like The Blazing World the majority of it is based on the work of other scholars that's how this kind of book works but I also made sure that I did kind of go through and check some of these references. And they're just in court records. They are in you know petitions by ordinary people. You start to get diaries, autobiographies, that kind of thing in a really big way in the 17th century. And it's sort of, I realize I'm saying this to a Tudor historian, so you probably correct me on this, but there's an awful lot of this kind of material which isn't really there for earlier periods. We have a very rich tapestry of particularly kind of court records. I mean, we don't have anyone like Thomas Cromwell, unfortunately, or fortunately for people at the time, perhaps, But, you know, there's these kind of fantastic state papers, all this kind of stuff. There's just a massive, massive archive of material for these people, which allows you to understand the lives of ordinary people in a way that really is quite vivid and quite incredible, actually.
2: Let's explore some of the issues of the first 25 years or so of the 17th century. Could you outline the sort of social issues that England was facing, how these became political issues. I was particularly interested in what you call class conflict in the lives of ordinary people.
1: So In the early 17th century, England is coming to the sort of climax of a long period of population growth. And in a sense, that's great. That shows that people are wealthy enough to have more children. And that's sort of broadly how it works in this period. People don't tend to have children until they can afford them. So as the country becomes wealthier, the population grows. The trouble is that that also causes inflation. It's a a cost of living crisis, basically. And by the early 17th century, that has developed into quite a serious degree of social strain, really. And it's manifested in things like hunger. There's a famine in 1597. There's another famine in 1623. And, you know, for the first time really in an English famine, you can look through the records and these kind of just heartbreaking descriptions of people dying in the streets because they're hungry. While this is going on, you know, Prince Charles is gallivanting around Europe pursuing the Spanish match. But you know, it's kind of just really sort of serious hunger in the early 17th century. And it's also manifested in things like high levels of property crime. There's this astonishing statistic which was calculated I think by a guy called Steve Hindle, and he argues, or he suggests that between 1580 and 1620, I think it is, there are more people hanged than there were between 1620 and the abolition of capital punishment in 1967, which given what we think about the 18th century and the bloody code and, you know, all the highwaymen and all that kind of thing it's just remarkable. I mean, it's just a very, very bloody period of history. And you can also fit into that ideas about gender crisis as well. There's a bit of debate about this, but it seems to me like there is a particular kind of concentration of kind of fear of unruly women amongst the ruling men, basically, in this period. And it's manifested in things like witch trials, things like the use of cucking stools, that kind of thing, which seems to be more common in this period. There's lots and lots of reasons behind all that, but what I see it as fundamental is this pressure on society caused by inflation and population growth, and it feeds into politics in lots of different ways. And actually the gender element is really, really important for politics because it plays on this idea of society being overturned by social unease and also this theme of the world turned upside down, which is sort of motif throughout the book. In addition to that, in kind of raw financial terms, one of the big problems that the crown has in this period is that the value of their tax base is going down in real terms because of inflation. They find it difficult to increase the amount of tax that they're collecting in line with the real value of what they need. And that means that They have to then go to Parliament and say, can we have some more money, please? And Parliament basically says no, unless you give us these kind of concessions. And that repeated process of negotiation becomes very, very fractured. So I sometimes say that in this period, basically, England itself is incredibly rich, probably one of the richest countries in the world at this point. But the state, the crown is very, very poor, they find it very, very difficult to get access to that money. There's blood in the system if you find the right vein, as one of Charles I's administrators sort of says.
2: That's such a vivid picture of it, and I'm always struck by this idea that becomes so important in the early 17th century that the king must live of his own, must have enough money to fend for himself, that has actually never been the case, at least in the period I know. the period we're talking about for this podcast, Henry VII, Henry VIII, they've always done things to supplement that income, you know, dissolving all the monasteries, for example. Yes. So there's always been another way of gathering cash, and then suddenly this principle is being applied quite strictly in this period. We probably ought to add religion in. Perhaps you can tell us a bit more about what you were saying earlier about Puritanism. Give us a sense of the groups around at yes. this time, and how they complicate the story.
1: <laughs> One of the things I was trying to do in The Blazing World was actually give readers a sense of the real complexity of religion. And in a sense, the basic thing is that lots more people are reading about religion and thinking about religion. If we're looking at long term causes for Instability. Print, obviously not new in this period, but there's more and more of it. It's more common. Literacy is much higher than it was 150 years ago. I also make quite a lot about the rise of the middling sort, which are basically people who have done quite well out of the price rise, out of population growth. They're farmers who have enough land to feed themselves and then sell a bit on. And maybe they rent out one of their houses to someone and they do really, really well. And these guys are more literate, they're more connected to the center, and they're more likely to find themselves thinking about religion and politics. And this is matched by a big growth in the availability of printed stuff about religion, about sermons, all those kind of things. And what that does is it creates this Tower of Babel effect where lots and lots of people have lots and lots of different views. And sometimes you read histories of the 17th century where you talk about Anglicans and Puritans, but it's much, much, much more complicated than that. you got people who are, I mean, I don't really use the word Anglicanism for the early part of the period because I don't think it's quite right yet. Most of the Church of England people are Calvinists, they follow Calvin, they believe in predestination, all those kind of things. But equally amongst those, you've got ones who are really, really devout, and broadly speaking, they're the Puritans. And then you've got ones who are really devout, they're Puritan, but they're happy to work with bishops, they don't mind about bishops too much. And then you've got ones who do mind about bishops. And then you've got people who believe that everyone should get together and create their own congregations, the independents. And then you've got people who just say, do you know what, sack it all, we're leaving the church, of England we're going to form our own little congregation and they're called separatists and there's all these different groups and of course the more radical fringes of those are quite small in the early part of the period but then by the middle of the 17th century they get this kind of great moment to flourish and then you get the appearance of people like Quakers, Baptists become much more important and essentially I mean it can feel incredibly complicated it's also very stirring these are ordinary people who are thinking about the big questions and they're coming to their own views and they're creating these kind of new ideas and and it's brilliant and it's wonderfully inspiring in lots and lots of ways and you see female preachers you see poor peasants from yorkshire become leaders in religious movements and it's very very inspiring in that regard probably quite terrifying if you're a sort of moderately conservative gentleman in the period then on top of that you get the problems which are created by the political and religious inclinations of the monarchs and james the first is calvinist as far as i can tell he's calvinist but in the 1620s when this big conflict which explodes in bohemia and then germany and pulls in most of europe and the calvinists are saying to james you must get involved you must get involved you must get involved it's good versus evil which side are you on kind of thing and james is looking at his purse saying well i haven't got any money sorry (laughs) i'd I'd love to go in and look out for my daughter and my son-in-law but i just haven't got the cash so sorry and then that then causes him to lose some of the connections with that puritan calvinist group so he moves towards a Different group within the church. And this is the so called Arminians. And these are people who believe that the church should have much more ceremony. It should be much more hierarchical, much more ordered. But also, they really do believe in this beauty of holiness the idea that everything should look really nice. You can't have St. Paul's with all these market stalls all over it. You can't have these cathedrals with these townspeople with these big ugly pews that they've got. You've got to sort everything out, you've got to make it look properly you know, kind of ordered. And then Charles I goes in for that in a big way, in such a manner that he really alienates quite a lot of moderates and then that becomes one of the reasons that his rule falls apart in the 1640s.
0: March 2023 marks 20 years since the start of the Iraq War. The war was waged to rid the world of a brutal dictator, yet it would end marred in controversy. So why did the Iraq War go so badly wrong? And what legacies has it left behind today? Well, I'm your host, James Patton Rogers, and every Monday on the Warfare Podcast from History Hit, we're exploring a different aspect of this tumultuous period in history. We'll be asking... What was the role of the UK government and Prime Minister Tony Blair? Could the Secretary of State legally order British forces into Iraq, and could British forces follow that law? And how did ISIS rise from the destruction left behind?
1: But ISIS, this peculiar strain that we all came to to know very well in uh, the mid-2010s, really got its start because of the US invasion of Iraq. Join
0: me, James Patton Rogers, on the Warfare podcast from History Hit as we look back on one of the most controversial conflicts in recent history.
2: The recurring theme that struck me from your research is that people had a sense at this time of what was constitutionally right and what wrong. What do you think people in the 17th century understood or believed about their constitution and why did this Cause problems, particularly when Charles was king.
1: I mean, that's an incredibly interesting question, and I have to say, <laughs> my assumption is that people did think about this. I mean, not everyone thinks about everything all the time, but that it was an important set of issues, and they would see that the crown was doing things which were borderline unlawful. There's a whole debate around Charles the First as to whether he actually ends up breaking the law, and he probably doesn't on balance, but he's certainly bending it and the way he's doing that he's using his 12 common law judges to basically give legal backing to stuff which is a bit iffy and sometimes that stuff is quite widely supported so for example one thing that the state does which is constitutionally a little bit dubious is that they periodically have a very rigorous policy against enclosers and people who hoard grain in times of famine now the mechanisms they do this are probably not great but broadly speaking people think okay yeah the guys doing this are bad we need to sort them out where it becomes a bit more of a problem is when Charles is basically taking more money in tax the classic thing being ship money which is one of these things that people vaguely know about and is again slightly more stirring and important than you might necessarily think the basic issue with ship money is that Charles he can take it if there's an emergency situation most people believe that he can take that kind of thing if there's an emergency situation and he basically says the number of pirates in the channel is an emergency and I need to deal with them and And also, we are looking a little bit weak internationally, and we need a bigger navy. And basically, he says, well, that's such a big emergency, we need to take this levy. And then there's a big lawsuit through which he actually gets his way. And that kind of thing sort of forces people to think about these things. Essentially, these are quite complicated questions about the role of the royal prerogative. Where does power come from? Does it come from the people?
0: Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: the other argument being that no tax is valid unless the people have given their assent, which they do through Parliament, then if the king can take taxes without Parliament, then where does his power come from? And it's very easy to assume that people don't really engage with this stuff. It's all in the abstract. It's all going on at London and Westminster. But when there are sheriffs going around and taking people's money for these taxes, and when there are royal proclamations at the Assize Court twice a year saying that the king needs this kind of stuff, then it really does mean that people are engaged with it. And one of the big things that's going on in this period is that the monarchy is engaging with the people. It's using propaganda. It's using new forms of communication as a way of getting its point across. And the flip side of that is that other people can form different views. And when the state does things which are controversial, then people might not necessarily always agree with them. I think these kind of constitutional issues are bigger than people think with the Civil War. But that is another research project, I think.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it certainly is. And I mean, I take your point about ship money. If you've got an emergency because you're now attacked, you're at war on the sea, it's no good building (laughs) ships then. They're not going to be ready in time. So, you know, being prepared for the coming storm is obviously crucial. Did Charles do some things, anything's right?
1: (laughs) I'm vaguely sympathetic to Charles. I mean, he's stuffy, he's bit pompous great art collection just a genuinely quite a clever guy with a fantastic eye for art he has van dyke over in london and he goes and sort of watches him paint and all this kind of stuff and he seems like an all right family man, I suppose. But I suppose the, the other thing is that some of the things that Charles is trying to do in the 1630s, they're quite sort of old fashioned, but he is trying to reform society. And sometimes in quite sort of puritanical ways, he has proclamations against swearing, and he certainly doesn't like disorderly behaviour. But he really pushes for the rollout of the poor law, things like that. I mean, he uses the royal prerogative to do it. So it's questionable methods, but he does ensure that that kind of system is there and all that kind of thing. And I mean, he obviously makes mistakes but then which politicians don't and he is faced with very difficult circumstances in the 1640s he's faced with enemies if you like who genuinely do want to reform the sort of political landscape and they say they don't they do say they're going back to the ancient constitution but what they're trying to do get control of the executive is really pushing things in a new direction and i can understand why charles probably didn't want that because none of his predecessors had had to go to parliament to get their ministers approved you can't imagine henry viii doing that can you
2: i mean he does feel like a man out of time actually i mean you put him down in the 1520s and 1530s as he's king then instead of henry done a blooming good job really I mean, he's got <laughs> heirs who are male you know he's happily married yeah. he upholds a conservative <laughs> form of religion okay so he doesn't let parliament meet for a while but you know that's fairly <laughs> common it does feel like he's just sort of a century displaced perhaps
1: yeah and the other things about charles he's a lot less or his government is a lot less brutal than some of the ones which have Gone earlier. No one is burnt for heresy under Charles I. He is the last monarch who uses torture, unfortunately. But you look at people like Pryn Burton and Basswick, the Puritans who get their ears cut off. I mean, it is possible to imagine an earlier monarch just having them hanged or something. But there is actually a lot more of a a respect for due process under Charles than you might imagine. And the whole thing with the judges is quite interesting because a real tyrant, a real kind of autocrat would not have to do that. Whereas Charles does he sort of has this veneer of lawfulness where I think his actions are less forgivable I suppose is where after the civil wars happen he basically plunges the country into another one which causes untold suffering and death just because he doesn't want to give away his prerogative.
2: Can we talk then about the eruption of war between the king the royalists or cavaliers and parliament known as the roundheads just as you have problematized religion for us here, you highlight this isn't as simple a simpler battle as being between absolutism and tyranny on the one hand and democracy on the other, that Oliver Cromwell and Parliament aren't actually truly democratic. So, can you explain this and explain what the parliamentarians were fighting for, if not for democracy?
1: I suppose the best way to think about it is to think about it in two areas, really. There is a constitutional element. The parliamentarians are not fighting for democracy, as we would understand it, i.e. they're not saying everyone should have the vote, although some of them do down the line. And some of them say all men should have the vote. And they're not arguing for modern democracy. But what they are essentially arguing for in constitutional terms is that the monarch should not be above the law and that ultimately sovereignty comes from the people. It doesn't come from God. Now, lots of royalists would probably agree with that. In addition to that, obviously, there's the religious element. The parliamentarians are more likely to be Puritans. There's also an element of what are they against? People in this period in the Civil War are partly fighting for things, but they're also partly fighting against things. Both sides are parading their bigotries. The particular parliamentarian bigotry is against Catholics. They believe that there is a sort of popish plot to take over the state, and they are fighting against it. And John Pym, for example, who's a sort of early parliamentarian leader, is phenomenally bigoted against Catholics. Oliver Cromwell is a bit less so actually by the end but to begin with he's just got this kind of fairly unthinking traditional anti-Catholic bigotry. So that's essentially the sort of three pillars to it. It's a king who is under the law whose sovereignty comes from the people. It's Puritanism i.e. a reformed Protestant church and it's anti-Catholic. The Royalists on the other hand and this is actually one of the really interesting things because back in the 19th century people just assumed the Royalists were just stuffy aristos and they weren't really thinking about what they're fighting for but actually the Royalists had a really interesting interesting ideology of their own and lots of them believed that the king's power came from god they had a much more sort of absolutist view of monarchy not all of them but in general they also were more sympathetic to the sort of beauty of holiness type armenian Laudian, that kind of church of england essentially the kind of precursors of modern anglicanism their particular bigotry was a different one it wasn't against catholics it was against puritans and it was against popular participation so the thing that they were terrified of was ordinary people giving sermons ordinary people standing on tubs in fleet street and talking about religion they were terrified about ordinary women talking about politics they didn't want politics to be something that people did outside of the proper channels two of the things which galvanized a lot of support for the royalists in 1641 were firstly large-scale protests outside parliament there's a big kind of protest big marches and not riots marches much more like the anti-Brexit march than the poll tax riots if you want to make modern analogies. So that was one thing which caused a lot of kind of moderate conservatives to flock towards the royalist side and the other was religious radicalism. There's this kind of big kerfuffle, that's a technical term, in the late summer early autumn of 1641 where basically these orders go out which tell people to pull down all these new paintings and altar rails and things in churches and that's quite disorderly when that happens and lots of moderates look at this and go no way we can't have all these people marching into churches and chopping up altar rails and lobbing them in the river that's just anarchic so at one point in the book i say well the parliamentarians aren't fighting for democracy but the royalists say that they are fighting against democracy and what they mean by that is participation by the people the parliamentarians aren't fighting for democracy in a modern sense no way but firstly, I would say that the idea that the people are sovereign is a sort of precursor to that, at the risk of sounding a bit whiggish. It's a step in that direction. But the other thing is the royalists are basically arguing against democracy. They think that democracy is a bad thing. It's all about horrible oiks pulling down altar rails and stuff. And they don't want any of that, not on their watch.
2: So I'm going to leap over the massive events of the mid 17th century, which people are going to have to go to your book to read all about. But I want to ask you quite a few other things. And I particularly want to ask you about the restoration of monarchy following the Civil War and the Republic and Oliver Cromwell, the protectorate, all this. Charles II restored to the throne in May 1660. After everything that's gone before in this 18 years or so since the outbreak of civil war, the return of the monarchy might seem like the biggest plot twist in history. Do you think the restoration is the failure of the Republic? Is it a genuine desire for the return of monarchy? Or was it widely predicted at the time? Lots of people thought, oh yes, well, that's sort of inevitable.
1: I don't think it was widely predicted, actually. I mean, it's very easy to look back at history and assume that what happens is inevitable. I don't think that was the case here. And you look at someone like George Monk, who's the general who brings back the king, brings back the monarchy, but it's quite late in the day that he actually says, oh, by the way, this is my aim. And historians don't really know when he decides that that's what he wants to do. So it seems like, at least for him, and he's right at the centre of it, it's quite late in the day that the monarchy becomes the solution. I think there's a gradual process of clawing back by the traditional political order, which starts in 1653, really. And the Cromwellian Protectorate is, in a way, a kind of step towards the old order because it's eventually becomes based on a single person house of lords they don't call it a house of lords but it is basically a house of lords and a house of commons and that process has already started to take place and initially in 1653 there's a written constitution which is very very interesting but it is supposed to be a sort of partly a return to business as usual and then that doesn't really work because it comes from the army so there's a coup against the army which is why Cromwell is offered the crown in 1657 and that then is another step towards the more. Traditional constitution. Then, of course, everything falls apart when Oliver Cromwell dies. And then it's possible to imagine lots and lots of different possibilities at that point. And in a sense, in hindsight, it probably looks like the restoration of the monarchy is the most likely, but you could have had a new protectorate. There's a the suggestion that sort of parliamentarian General John Lambert could be the protector. They try restoring the Rump Parliament, which is this unicameral system. They do lots and lots of things. And eventually the only one that sticks is the restoration of the monarchy. And of course there's a question of what kind of monarchy is restored and in the 1660s on the one hand you've got the monarchy really does try and restore pre-civil war church of england and try and stamp out presbyterianism puritanism all this kind of stuff but on the other hand in terms of constitutional stuff and where does tax come from in 1660 the vast majority of tax now comes from parliament which it didn't in 1642 and all these kind of old prerogative courts like star chamber all been abolished so it's a different monarchy i think in the 1660s i don't think think the republic is the sort of complete dead end if that makes sense
2: i wonder what do you think cromwell would have needed to have done differently for republicanism to have been a lasting alternative to monarchy apart from perhaps live longer and have a more impressive son
1: I think Richard is one of the more sympathetic characters of the period because he basically just goes, oh, do you know what? Not having this, I'm going to go into retirement. And he lives a long and happy life, pursued by his creditors for a bit, but once he's kind of shaken them off, he lives a long and happy life in Hertfordshire. But he doesn't have the support of the army, and the army is still bitter after what's happened in 1657. So the only way really I can see the Republic surviving is if they find a way of selecting a protector, which manages to balance these different interest groups, and the army is a really big one, because one of the things that Charles II does, which is very sensible at the time, and very successful, is he gets rid of the army, just says, you know, I'm going to pay you all off go home and they do they're quite happy to do that most of them so the army is a big political block in the republic and one of the things that cromwell does by the end is he manages to alienate them which is a mistake Uh, his own personal connections and charisma is enough to kind of keep them on side while he's still alive but then when he dies you know his young son the young gentleman richard they call him just doesn't have that charisma he's not a brother in arms he's just a hampshire gentleman so that was a mistake if they'd found some way of selecting a lord protector but it's quite difficult to imagine how that would
2: work. May I ask you a big broad question which is about the role of fear in Mm. driving events in the 17th century? I was struck by the letter you found from a French ambassador writing in 1620 who worries that he sees evidence in England of the forerunners of civil war and of course this is 20 years before (laughs) it breaks out and it made me wonder whether fear is a kind of underrated cause of the Mm. tumult of the century given what you've said about the rise of the middling sort and text and print and newspapers and things like that. Have you found much evidence of yeah. fear in your research?
1: Oh, 100%, it's a really good point. There's so many moments in this period where one of the things about The Blazing World is it is very much a narrative history. And I know us academics are not supposed to write narrative history. But one of the things you really appreciate when you're writing narrative history is the way that events just take on a life of their own. If we have our sort of academic hats on, that's why it's so important to do narrative history. Because if you're just writing about structures, if you're just writing about the slow burning social change, you don't always appreciate this some of the moments where just events take on a life of their own, they're often driven by fear. And the 1620s, the fear of what the Duke of Buckingham might do, the fear of Puritans, the fear of Catholics from the other side. And then in 1641, things like the Irish Rebellion in 1641, where the parliamentarians really whip up this sort of fear of this great uprising in Ireland where Protestants are being allegedly massacred and the Irish are going to come over to England and massacre people in England. And they use that as a kind of political tool and they're able to do so because it is fertile ground, because people are genuinely afraid of this kind of thing. And again, as you say, that fits into this sort of new world of print, because one of the things with the Irish rebellion is that immediately, it becomes the sensational news item and this stuff is rolling off the press with these kind of horrific sensationalized depictions of violence and everything and that then becomes a driving force but equally I mean in that period of political breakdown in the early 1640s you've got the king fears that the London crowd is going to burst into Whitehall and murder him in his bed the parliamentarians fear that if they don't control the king he's going to have them beheaded which he's probably got reasonable grounds to do at this point So I think you're right. Fear really is a kind of driving force and it intermeshes with this world of print, but also this world where events are just moving so fast and everything is on a knife edge. And I think in those situations, fear and prejudice can become really powerful sources of action. And that's definitely what happens here.
2: You called your book Blazing World, and it's the title of a novel written by Margaret Cavendish, the Duchess of Newcastle in 1666, whose husband was a royalist captain general. The story she tells is of a young woman's journey into a new world, classic story quest, and her experience of the utopian society she finds there. And so, I wondered about your intention in using this title for your work. Do you think a utopia emerged out of the tumult, or if that's going too far? Do you think that life was much improved, and if so, what evidence would you offer in support of that?
1: <laughs> I mean, I think by the late seventeenth century, because of what's happening in the wider economy, English people are, generally better off. And that's particularly the case for the labouring poor. So there's no more famine, plague has gone after the 1660s, the wages of labourers are higher than they have been 100 years before. And people are saying, oh, the labourers are all smoking tobacco and drinking tea and stuff. So in terms of the prosperity of the population in England, that has definitely improved by the late 17th century. You know, there's lots and lots of reasons for that. It's all to do with the market economy, it's all to do with social welfare spending, all this kind of stuff. I think one of the things about Margaret Cavendish and her utopian book on the blazing world is that it's quite ambiguous because in there they have this kind of utopian society. But they're all arguing over how many suns there are because they've discovered telescopes and they can all look at a flea, but they can't stop them itching. So they can't actually do anything useful with it. And then it ends with this really weird alien invasion and conquest where basically the blazing world uses its technological advances to subdue other societies now there are lots and lots of different ways of reading this and I don't think the secrets of the Duchess of Newcastle's mind are ever going to be revealed to us at any point soon but one really interesting reading of this which I was really taken by is that it's almost a critique of imperialism in this point and in some ways we can see the same thing with England in that it's very very prosperous and a lot of that prosperity is coming from internal things it's coming from greater agricultural productivity but some of it a significant portion of it is also coming from the beginnings of colonialism and so it's that ambiguity i think it's a very ambiguous utopia is Margaret Cavendish's blazing world and insofar as England is a utopia it isn't obviously a utopia by the end of the seventeenth century but it is somewhere where there has been significant change and for many people that change has been for the better again it's very ambiguous because it's also a society which is engaging in large-scale colonialism it's also a society where the poor are very very poor it's a society which is starting to go into the slave trade in a big big way so it's a very ambiguous ending for England I don't think it's a narrative of progress as such there are things which have changed towards modernity but there are things which have become a lot worse for a lot of people and i think it's that ambiguity which cavendish i think captures really really well and i think that's what's really really interesting about her novel
2: and that's in the spirit of thomas more's utopia so that Mm. fits very beautifully two last questions for you i read in one review of your work that you are clearly a roundhead. And I thought that maybe you would like a a right of reply. What would you say to this? Did you find that by the end of reading this, you sympathise with one group more than
1: another? I think Jesse Childs is probably broadly right. The thing is, I like football as well, and I like to have a beer on a Sunday. So I would have been quite a difficult roundhead, I think. And I think that's one of the things that's quite interesting about this sort of royalist parliamentarian thing is that there's also a culture element to it. And certainly for us in the modern world, the royalists look a lot more attractive, even if they were probably more authoritarian and less likely to usher in democracy i'd like to think i'd be one of the levelers or the quakers or one of these groups but i'm sure everyone says that don't they <laughs>
2: <laughs> the last thing i wanted to ask you actually relates to jesse Charles. we've got a sort of period of a great flourishing of works on the 17th century jesse's siege of loyalty house which is wonderful anna kay's restless republic just won the duff cooper prize claire jackson's devilland won the Wolfson, among many others but Why do you think there's this renewed interest in the 17th century? And is it finally going to capture the imagination in the same way as the 16th century
1: has done? The fashionable answer is, of course, it's all to do with Brexit. And I think Anna Kay's book, for example, is about the British political nation doing something shocking and then having to work through the consequences of it for the next 11 years. So we've still got a few to go. And I know Claire Jackson's book is partly inspired by England looking weird from the outside. So that's the kind of trendy aspect for it. I like to think it's partly to do with prestige telly because what you've got in the 17th century is you've got an incredibly complicated period of history where it's all very morally ambiguous and it's very, very hard to find people who we really like and then don't do something horrendous. And it is a bit like some of these TV shows where actually they're entertaining, they're complex, they've got a driving narrative but my God, do you hate all the characters? And I think the fashion for that might have pulled itself into history, but but also a more sort of serious answer as well is that at the moment, we are thinking about things in this country. We are thinking about things like where does sovereignty come from? We are thinking about things like the relationship between the state and society more general than the population. We're thinking about what does democracy really mean? And I think with all those kind of things, these big constitutional questions are really pertinent. So I think that is part of it.
2: I like that answer. I like that. <laughs> Idea that it's both high politics, of course, we now know is completely connected to low politics and societal changes, and also what's on telly. I think that's really <laughs> important. I mean, in terms of what sort of history is interesting and how we're writing history, that's a fascinating answer. As has been this whole conversation. Thank you so much for giving us this taste of this wonderful work, The Blazing World, subtitle A New History of Revolutionary England, which people should pick up a copy of. Thank you so much.
1: Brilliant. Thank you so much.
2: And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, my researcher, Esther Arnott, and Stuart Beckwith, who edited this episode. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. History is full of extraordinary people